The standard is shocking, really. I've been back here and I see the standard and I think, wow, any chance? If I'm a spectator and watching that today, I'm thinking, is this what Scottish football is all about? The standard is so poor. We've got to do a lot better. If I'm a paying customer, I'm not coming back to watch that. I'll tell you that much. Those were the words of greeting-faced Derek Adams, the Ross County manager yesterday. Uh, Derek, shut your moaning face and get yourself along to the Rovers, where uh, whether it's at Starks Park or on the road, uh, Ian Murray's side is delivering standards, value for money and entertainment that we haven't seen in nearly 30 years. So backed by nearly 2,000 raucous Kirkcaldy Santas, the Rovers put Dundee United to the sword at Tanadice, ending the Terror's unbeaten league run and extending the gap at the top of the table by five points. Uh, so Dylan Easton separated the sides with a stunning effort just before the hour and a solid rearguard action saw the Rovers home. Now, we were there and uh, we don't want to give John Beaton any excuses by wasting time. So let's jump right in. Uh, so joining me today, we have uh, some of the usual suspects, and I'm going to start by introducing John Greer, who I believe has a, a Christmas treat for us that, that might only be for the folks watching the video. It also works, work, only works on the video, also only works if you've seen the film. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> thanks for that, John. Yes, I'm thanks for that. Sen sensational. <laughs> sensational. Um, right, there's a lot to live up to here. Blair, how are you? Um, I, I'm lost for words. <laughs> uh, Robbie Weir is also here. How are you, mate? Very festive, very happy. And uh, yeah, what a day. What an absolute excellent. great, excellent day. And uh, Scott Fleming as well. For the, for the first time joining us from Scotland, Scott, how are you? I'm uh, brilliant, mate. Fantastic. So, Izzy, we'll, uh, we'll dive right into this one because we've got so much to talk about. That was a, a thoroughly enjoyable afternoon. Um, Robbie, why don't you start us off? We'll start in the usual place, which is uh, everybody at about quarter past two trying to work out what the hell Ian Murray's done this time? Yeah, um, the WhatsApp erupted into to two discussions of, are we playing a, a 3-6-1? Uh, or what's going on? Are we playing four at the back or three at the back, basically? Um, and what made it even more interesting was that during the warm-up, um, Ian Murray decided to, to basically practice both. So he had a, a back four warming up and a back three, just so that nobody knew to keep us... That uh, festive spirit of not knowing what gift you were going to be granted. But yeah, um, a bit of a surprise. Jack Hamilton um, was on the bench uh, along with Gullen. So Josh Mullen was starting. And yeah, you just, I think for the first half, just it was quite a, a difficult one. Took us a while to get adjusted into the game. But yeah, it was interesting to see that starting lineup and how things developed from there. Yeah, definitely. And and um Blair, what were your, your initial thoughts? Did you think he was going um kind of all out with a three at the back or it looked like a four to you? Um so I was I was really torn. I did I must admit I did kind of think three. Um and then at the more I thought about it, the more I thought maybe it is a four. So the the big thing for me, again, I used the word brave on on a few occasions talking about his lineups. 
And um, I thought dropping um, O'Reilly to put in Brown at centre-half. So my initial instinct, my gut instinct when I saw the team lineup was, no, he's not doing that. There's no way he's dropping a recognised centre-half to put, who is a decent centre-half um, in Scott Brown, in his place. I, I just didn't see him doing it. So he's obviously wanting to play Brown in the midfield. Then the more I thought about it, I kept going back to that comment he made. Um, I can't remember what game it was. It was a few weeks ago, though, when he talked about how putting Brown at centre-half is actually quite an attacking option because he plays out from the back and he creates from the back and it improves us. So you start to look at it and you think, maybe it is. Maybe it is a back four. Um, and I thought it was really bold of him, actually, because, again, it's an, another kind of thing we've talked about with him where he's gone with a plan. He's gone with a game plan and it wasn't let's cancel them out. It was let's look at what they do well. So they play quite a pressing game. They play quite high in the pitch. They shut you down quite a lot. Um, so let's set up a team that will cope with that and, and I'll play football from the back. And actually was was would have been the right decision had Jim Goodwin got the memo because they appeared to just want to lump the ball into the box. It was the most bizarre opening kind of 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, where I'm thinking they just keep whipping the ball in. They're, they're not even playing... You know, through the lines, they're, they're straight to the channel, they're whipping the ball in, and it took us a wee while to cope with it, to, to deal with although we dealt with it pretty well, I must admit. Um, it did give me the fear a little bit, and that the goal that they scored at Starks came from, and we spoke about it at the time, came from Scott Brown not being a centre-half. No disrespect to him, but it, it came from that. Um, so it did kind of worry me a wee bit. So I wondered whether Jim Goodwin had made that change quite late on when he saw the team, or whether that was the plan from the start. But um, no, I thought it was pretty bold um, from Ian Murray. I thought it was um, exceptionally bold. And I think we we spoke on Thursday night about um, the fact that Ian Murray does tend to be sort of a shade braver than, than I think many of us are, are. I don't know if it's because what we are conditioned to um, or if we're just cowardly or, or what it is. But so obviously we had, we had the kind of the one of our big talking points um, before the game was, you know, you're going to play a two man holding midfield or a one man holding midfield. And that was almost that was like the that was like the parameters of our imagination. Almost like you've got the safe option, which is play Scott Brown and Sean Byrne in midfield. And then you've got the risky option, which is only play Sean Byrne. And uh, Ian Murray went one more to the other side, which I've taken out one of his central defenders, which none of us could even imagine, which frankly is why none of us are football managers. Um, but it's so uh, worthy of, of kind of recognition and worthy of praise, because I think as well as obviously just us Egypt's talking, I also think if you just take the average championship manager, they don't make that decision. Yeah. Where there's very, very few managers. Like, and going back, like, I mean, I take the easiest example because it's the one that we recognise best. Not a chance John McGlynn takes out one of his centre-halves and plays a midfielder in a game like that. We've spoken about it before. John McGlynn's big game tactic is quite, I don't know, negative is maybe not the right word, but he certainly he starts from a point of nullify the opposition and then build. Yeah, let's Whereas, not lose rather than let's go and win. Yeah, exactly. It's you know we've we've arrived with a point. Let's make sure we don't go away with anything less. Whereas yeah. Ian Murray is much more kind of swashbuckling almost. And right. um, <laughs> to, to your point about Jim Goodwin and Dundee United, I think a big big factor in it, 
and it would be interesting to know how much Ian Murray had sort of advanced knowledge of this is they were missing Ross Dockery, who I think should have been back, but he picked up an injury in the week. And someone who watched a lot more Dundee United than me might correct me on this, but the feeling I get is that Ross Dockery is sort of their Sean Byrne, yeah. in as much as he's the he's the base of their midfield. So that point of what you were saying there about they were just kind of going wide and trying to get across, nothing was coming through the middle because Craig Sibbled and that boy Jordan Tilson, who I really don't know much about at all, but Craig Sibbled certainly is is like an all-action midfielder. He's a guy that you want in the middle of a fight, and you could see that in the game. He snaps into tackles, he winds people up, and he moves the ball around quickly. What he doesn't do is put his foot on the ball and give you a platform. And it meant that the whole game, they were having to build from their back line as opposed to being able to do what we were doing, which is building out of the midfield. I thought that was a huge part of the the kind of the pattern of the game. And again, it's the kind of thing that if you know that in advance, or if you've got the the foresight to think that might happen, you can see why you'd make a decision, like bringing Scott Brown into your defence. And actually, that's where all the, the credit is due, because that is where I think a lot of the pattern of that game kind of um, stemmed from. Um. John, how did you feel about the the kind of the opening exchanges and the the way the first half developed? Well, just on the, the Scott Brown thing, I think we've said in the past that it shows you the mark of how how Scott Brown has been as a central defender that he can play in that role so easily. It's also, I think we've mentioned as well, if you're a manager coming up against the Rovers. You never know what team's going to be out there. You know, it, it's quite remarkable that we've we've got all these changes. I felt that they had the better of the play in the open opening 20 minutes. It took us a wee while to get into it. But I never felt in any real danger. I never felt we were under constant pressure or anything or, or there was any real threats. But... Um, and I thought we then started to play our way into the game. We started to get St- Sam Stanton on the ball, which means we're we're moving forward at uh, a good rate. And uh, I think the the work rate of Josh Mullen and Callum Smith and guys like that was quite evident in the first half as well. That the the power of work the boys put in, and it, it's a lot of times as we've said unseen work or. It doesn't go greatly heralded, um, but and again, a great start to the game, a great workmanlike performance from us, and we were never really in that much of a danger. That's it. It's when you look at that Dundee United team on paper, and you think, you know, how are they? How are they going to hurt you? How are they going to come out and and really do danger to you? It's going to be Louisville inside the penalty box, and it's going to be Glenn Middleton and Kai Fotheringham on either side. And really, in the first half, that's not really what they managed to do. Moat was involved, but it was all outside the box. And then Middleton and Fotheringham were almost having to act as as kind of decoys. The, the really United's attack mostly was, um, was it Scott McMahon, the left back? Yeah. So it was like Middleton was having to try and take Ross Mellon out of the game. And then um, Scott McMahon was, I mean, is a good player. and. Uh, 
Josh Mullen was just having to try and stick with him in that whole half. And people get a wee bit frustrated when you're backing off. But I think sometimes you kind of need to do that. You need to just kind of slow it down and kind of defend your penalty box almost. But that, again, I think is just, it's testament, as you say, John, to the work that goes into that, that these various angles, you think, who's going to do damage here? And you're really closing down those points. And to the point where, yeah, as you say, I I think it's totally fair that Dundee United had the sort of the, the better of the first half. But the chances that they created were, you know, a couple of ones that were kind of flashed by the goal and a couple of corner kicks. They weren't really being able to exert any control on the game. It was it was the case of kind of flooding forward when they could. Um how are you You know what really stuck out for me just to come in there? Yeah. Is that it was interesting before the match, if you read any of the chatter that was going about on their side, and a lot of their fans were saying, Rafer there to be get, uh, got at, they're defensively weak, they uh, they could look a bit fragile, we've not conceded nearly as many goals as them. Yesterday, our defence was rock solid. Like They were restricted very much to chances from distance, long shots from outside the box. There was never any where you saw a player get free in the six-yard box and you thought, oh, we've got away with one. It was all sort of half chances from long range. Goodwin calls that out in his interview. He was like, Dubrovsky made some really good saves, but they were sort of saves that you would expect keepers to make at this level. Um, but yeah, just they they just had no way of breaking us down. And I know that it's been mentioned a few times before, like they might have a stronger start in 11, but then over the piece, we've got a better squad. And I think that yesterday summed that up to a team. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. I think what they've got is a very, very good start in 11. And they've got key players that they don't have replacements for. Um, Molt, I think, is one. I think they, they've basically got, a little bit like we do with Jack Hamlin, to be fair, they've basically got one out-and-out out number nine. And when he's not there, you're having to then try and work around it, like we did on, on Wednesday night. Ross Docherty is the other one um, that really stands out. Even at centre-half, like Declan Gallagher and Kevin Holt, easily you could make a case that they are the two best centre-halves in the division. Um, but then the after that you've got a real step down to that guy Ross Graham, who um seems pretty ropey anytime I've seen him. And I think that's where United will struggle. Because it doesn't take much when you take out these key players for your whole kind of game plan to really start to fall apart. And I think that's that's what a lot of that was yesterday. They couldn't get a foothold on that game. Um Scott, how did you feel about the kind of yeah, well, I mean the, the Rovers lineup and then the, the first half as a whole. Um, no, I kind of I thought it was going to be a back four just from the lineup. I didn't see. I, I could kind of see how we could go to a three, but I just thought, nah, he'll go with a back four. I don't think he'll try to. I think he also tried that back three a few weeks ago because it was kind of a cup tie, and he thought, right, maybe now's the time I I'm going to try it. But uh, no, I, I thought it was a good, a solid team uh, selection for us, and I thought that. I was a little bit disappointed that Jack Halton didn't start, but then again, you don't know if he's still feeling a bit under the weather or if he's been training. And apparently, he didn't even train Thursday, so like, yeah, you don't you don't know how it's going to be. Well, um, so I I understood that, and then no, I kind of agree with most of the things that have been said. I mean, the first half, I felt I agree that their most dangerous player was Scott McMahon down that left side, but I think. From our point of view, and I don't know if Murray maybe said it because at half time because it didn't really happen as much that 
Josh Mullen was not closing down Scott McMahon and was just allowing cross after cross after cross. And you're going, one of these needs to be stopped because at some point somebody's going to get on the end of one. And luckily for us, we dealt with what came into the box. But I mean, I just felt that Mullen needs to get closer to his man if we've got any chance of stopping any crosses. But other than that, I thought we were comfortable enough. I mean, they had, what, two shots on target in the first half, but it was like two that were straight at Kev and it was like bobbling along the ground. So it was nothing really to worry about. And then, I mean, we didn't... I felt that we were a little bit disappointing in the t- terms of we didn't get our foot on the ball and slow the game down to how we want to... I mean, not we play slow, but in terms of burn, just controlling the game, we were a bit rash and just I think we were taking a bit of time to settle into the game and I would say maybe by the half hour mark that's when we started to actually play a bit of our game and settle it down but no I thought first half it was pretty even and to be fair nil nil was probably the correct score at half time it wasn't a few half chances but nothing nothing crazy to be honest in that first half I I, I really agree with your point there about the the way the Rovers kind of started and the pattern of the game it's one of these things where I think before the game, all things being equal, going into a game like that, Tana Dice, there's 8,000 home fans, you know, they're unbeaten. You think, oh, if we're going to get a goal, it's probably going to be on the break. And that was kind of how the Rovers played. You know, when, when they got the ball, it was very quick, trying to get it into the feet of Stanton to then get it in behind for, for um, you know, Vaughn to run on to or Smith to run on to. Um, but yeah, as the, as the kind of half wore on, you start to see that actually they're not really controlling a lot of that midfield. There is a chance to get down, um, to get the ball down and really start to actually push the game 20 yards further towards their goal. And that was really evident at the start of the second half, where that first 15 minutes of that second half was like a lot of the other games we've had recently when we've been playing well, we've really started to kind of bring that together. And you can only imagine that as a direct result of actually being able to sit down for 15 minutes and say, right, based on the evidence of that 45, this is where we can go and really make a difference. And that was when I think Sean Byrne in particular just took a grip of the game uh, as much as anything. Um, Blair, do you want to kind of come in on that? Yeah, I was going to say, I actually completely agree with what Scott's saying about Sean Byrne and, and the slowing things down. There was actually a point after, and it was about, I was in my head, I was thinking it, as Scott said, about half an hour in, Scott Byrne actually stood kind of between the centre halves and put his foot on the ball and actually stood still for like a sec. I mean, just a second. But it was almost that, just let's do things better. Like, and it was, he slowed it right down and then we started to spray the ball about a little bit better and we got a bit of joy with it. Um, the thing that struck me though in the first half was that I think the the the, the Rovers deserve a lot of credit and that the whole club deserves a lot of credit and I think Dundee United, as much as we are saying we would normally go to set up to stop them, I felt like they did it to try and stop us. So th- there seemed to be a real the width was obviously their only kind of real avenue, but they'd looked at our side and they'd went, right, so you've got the choice of you go down our left and you've got Murray at centre half, you've got Dick outside him and you've got Easton in front of him, who's a wee workhorse. Or you go the other side and you've got Scott Brown at centre half, you've got Mellon outside him and you've got uh, Mullen in front of him. 
and it's there was a clear for me a clear option every time they got the ball they would always go wide but there was a clear chance to go to one side and to attack our right hand side and Scott's absolutely spot on and it's it's one of those things that you can I said it before I was amazed when I saw the running stats for Josh Mullen a few weeks ago because it always feels in the game like he's no shutting the man down and he's no he clearly is working really hard but it, it it did feel like that was where they were going to get their joy from. And it was more a case of as much as I wasn't massively worried or we were under a lot of pressure, it did feel like if they keep putting the ball in the box, eventually something's going to land. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's just a stray header or a, an unlucky bounce or whatever, something was going to land. So to get in at nil-nil at half time, as much as it was the right result, um, it, it felt good at that point because it, like you say it gave them a chance to sit down and come out in the second half and change things up a bit because it needed to change yeah um so in terms of the the sorry, going into the second half then Robbie did you feel like that the rovers kind of in the ascendancy did you see them coming out that strongly after the break you certainly hope for it I wasn't sure um with it but it's one of those ones where you just felt that we had gears to go up and that Dundee United were really playing sort of to their almost their sort of maximum in the sense that like they had a game plan that they were sticking with going down the wings as Scott and Blair both said whereas we you just felt we'd not had anything no shots on target um, and we'd not really done anything and then within the first five ten minutes of that second half you could see Right, this is going to be a different game in this second half. Let's see what they're like on the defence. Let's see what how they handle when the ball's getting played into them. And you saw players like, again, Stanton, Easton, really just come alive in that second half and being able to press forward. Balls were coming in the feet. Um, we were holding up a lot better. And just overall, just our game um, in general, just we took up a few extra gears, as I say. That's it. it felt like suddenly if they were going to get anything, it was going to be on the break. Yeah, actually being able to to sort of funnel the ball down one side as a kind of deliberate tactic sort of disappeared. They they really struggled to get any kind of control at that point. Um, and I, I don't think it would. I think it would be an exaggeration to say that it felt like a goal was coming, but it wasn't. Like I wasn't a surprise when the Rovers took the lead. I think that that was. I think we that did that, have a good chance just before we scored as well. Like bearing in mind, Walton had to make a really good save to keep it and that was probably the best chance of the game up to that point so you factor that in and then Vaughn has sort of like a snapshot from maybe 25 yards we yeah. were getting there it was just yeah very much like it was like almost like okay right we're in this game let's go and play that's exactly I think that that 15 minute spell between half time and the goal for the Rovers was a stronger 15 minutes than you know, they'd had at any point in the in the first half and it it sort of deserved a goal and uh and what a goal it was. Um John, why don't you you start? You can give us your thoughts on uh on that goal first of all. And I think we'll oh. all uh, all have a go at this one. Well my my thoughts on the, the start to the second half as well was it was like we came out and we were, we must have sat in there and said to ourselves is that all they can do? Is that they've had their that's all they've been able to do against us? Another quick wee thing was Scott Brown won the toss and we made them turn around. Now, you know, 
every time we play at home and they make the opposition make us, there's a wee groan goes up, doesn't there? Because we think, shit, they're not going to be coming towards us in the second half. I think that was a wee crucial thing as well. But we came out the second half, we started pinging the ball about, we started playing in the, our passing game. The the pass from, from Sam Stanton was just absolutely wonderful. You know, you then get you then get a uh, Dylan Neeson picks the ball up. I know Jim Clark. I've heard Jim Clark's thing about it's Archie Gemmell against uh, Holland, you know, which is a, a slight exaggeration. And to be fair, Archie Gemmell's finish wasn't quite as good as <laughs> Dylan Easton's. You know, Archie Gemmell's was a brilliant goal, and I'll say nothing against it, but Dylan Easton's uh, finish was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? And then it was just pandemonium, and I, I hear glasses were being smashed all over the place, and that isn't drinking glasses. That's glasses on the Ian Lattle's face getting knocked off him and stuff. So great, you know. It was it was just tremendous. Uh, a wonderful goal by the best player in the championship. Someone once said, "Absolutely." Um, and it's it's a very it's a goal that gets better the more you watch it. And the further yeah. back the move that you watch as well, um, it's very, very easy to say, but I think it really typifies this oversight because there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts in that goal. I think it's actually it's, it's Sean Byrne is closing down the boy in midfield, but it's Josh Mullen who takes the ball off him. Yeah, and then yeah, all of a sudden you've just you've got yellow jerseys just hearing across in different directions, and you can see the defenders just don't know where to go, and that creates that bit of space for Sam Stanton and it is it's an astonishing pass. But the the point um Alan Temple with his his kind of done the United audience hat on has kind of just put a screen grab up on Twitter this morning to basically say like from a defensive point of view, how are you conceding from here? And it's just the point as Dylan Easton takes his first touch. You know, he's maybe eight yards off the byline. And there's two guys directly between him and the goal. And it is just one thing. When you're looking at it and you're thinking, how how are you going to be able to go on and score from there? But it's like a question of sport, eh? It's like what happens next. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just like how does how does that go from there to, to end up in the back of the net, I should say. Great, great reference there on the week that uh, question of sports being canned by the BBC. Well done, Robbie. Yeah, I was I was all here uh, as soon as they got rid of uh, Sue Barker and Alan Coyce. That's it. Game over. No wonder <laughs> the, it went downhill from there, John. The the pass from Sam Stanton, though, like it actually reminded me of, do you remember the goal Ross Matthews scored against Morton? And it's the Regan yeah. Henry pass where it's like you, when you were, because obviously, I mean, I was, I was at the game, but everybody watching it on um, Wraith TV because it was on, um, during COVID and it was that thing when you first watch the replay you don't even see him like Ross Matthews yeah. makes the run and Regan Henry was the only person on the pitch that saw that movement and it just felt so reminiscent and when you saw Ben Ben's video the, the one that's right low down again you just see this little flash of yellow go across and Sam Stanton tracks him and nobody goes and he just slides this sort of reverse pass into his path um, the feet for Dylan Easton and then the finish and it was just I just wish he would for like that's now three 
goals on the bounce where I've had a cup of Bovril in my hand <laughs> and thing when the ball goes in and it's the most unfortunate thing in the world because you're, you're going, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to scold someone. <laughs> I was just in the, the, the bedlam in the, in the stand behind the goals and stuff and big Kev, who loves the fans anyway, but celebrating right in front of us and stuff. It was just, it was absolutely magic. Blair, I think I'm going to... Um... I'm going to men- uh, message Ben and we'll get Bovril Cam on the, the go for the next game. Honestly, it was actually, to be fair, it was, it was Bovril and a double biscuit a couple of weeks ago <laughs> celebrating in the Partick game. Still celebrating. Rather than a... Whole trying not to spill in. That's rather than Bovril and the biscuit. Rather than spotting uh, Liam Dick's dad, that will be going to the A and E and spotting who's been in there uh, getting third degree burns from Bovril. Brilliant. Do you want to give us your thoughts on the goal, Robbie? Uh, aye, just ridiculous. Just you see him out wide, and you're like, okay, what's he going to do? Because you know that he's got it in his locker. But I was, I was just genuinely gobsmacked by it. I. I really struggled to celebrate the goal because it was that bloody good um, just you, you see him cut in and then you think oh he's done really well to get away there like what's he going to do next and then he hits the shot and you're like oh that looks pretty decent and then it gradually just curls in and the, the closer you're like oh my god that's going to be incredible straight away my, my best friend's in like Berlin at the moment and I just text him and I was like Easton goal of the season that's just the, the words that I said and then he's like saying that he's cutting about the Brandenburg gate, just getting at fist bumps just because he's absolutely delighted. But yeah, just incredible. Absolutely incredible. And it only pushes Dylan Easton's stock up further. Um, just naturally, he's well known to our support in terms of what he can do. But I think now you're really seeing this. I know that we, we spoke about it before, being the best player in the championship. But it's genuinely carrying across to other supports and other people now who are sort of asking the question saying is it time to see this guy in the top flight which no it's not it's time for him to see in the top flight in six months when we get promoted it's, it's, uh, it's irrefutable evidence at this point um, Willie Miller on the radio after the game said that Dylan Easton had beaten three men and I, I'm going to take issue with that I think it's four yeah I'd say it's there's, four there's two initially he then shimmies past a third by the time he takes a shot, a fourth, a fourth responder is on the scene and can still do absolutely nothing about it. You've got to uh, chuck the goalie in for five as well. Uh, I don't know. I'm not convinced the goalie was ever close enough to the wall to be considered part of that. To be fair, um, Scott, uh, round us off with the thoughts on this goal. For it, we'll probably do a second round on the goal before we finish. But uh, if you could come in on that, please. I uh, know. I mean, as you say, it's. It is definitely, it's going to be up there for goal of the season, just in terms of, as we've said, the the reverse pass. As soon as Stanton made that pass, I was just like, we're going to get a good chance of this because we've caught at least two of their defenders and missed their midfield out. And so they're all like scampering back to get, make sure that they're back in position. And then I kind of thought the same one. They had the two guys that were like right in front of them. I thought, oh, he'll need to try and find somebody at the back post here. Otherwise, it's going to come to nothing and we'll need to come either back the way or go back down the line or something. But then he sits one of them down, then goes and does that whole, looks like he's moving, but he's no with his feet. And he just keeps going round and round. And then, yeah, I think they kept thinking he's going to chop back on his right foot. 
I don't think they ever thought he was hitting that with his left. Like, the way that they just kept showing him and showing him, I just thought, well, they're not shutting down his left foot. And then he just, yeah, goes and fires it in the... In the they called it the top peg, but I'm not sure it was. It was, <laughs> it was closer to the bottom, but it doesn't matter. It went in and uh, it was, I mean, my, my dad, after I was sitting next to my dad, and uh, after, obviously, everyone's... that I must say, also, that is the loudest... Dylan Easton chant I think I've ever heard that was mental how loud that was like I, yeah 1,900 just going for it it was great but uh, I must say that also my dad was like I thought you were about to take off there he was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I, I was worried because my dad was sat next to this old 80 year old <laughs> I was just worried at some point if we score I'll, I'll fear for her but <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's got body and old women. No, it is. Um, like Blair, you said on on Thursday night that like that last minute winner at Arbroath, like it was the first one that had been the terracing, which was it was like a a, a nice kind of change. It's a, it's a better uh, setting for like kind of running about daft uh, when a last minute winner goes in. That shed is perfect for a day like yesterday. Like you could you could transplant everything else about that and put it somewhere like a Livingston or whatever, and it's just it's not the same. It's that that the way the roofs yeah. kind of even the away stands. I was looking at it's like the home stands at Tannadice. They're all kind of like Starks, where the roof is kind of pitched upwards slightly, so the noise just escapes. Mm. Whereas the sheds kind of the the roofs pitched back down. So especially when you're in there, as you say, Scott, the the noise is incredible and. Um, uh, you could just tell every single what was it one thousand eight hundred and ninety eight folk in that stand, and every single one of them was singing as after that goal went in, um, which must be I'll tell you what that must be an incredible feeling as an individual to be the to be Dylan Easton, that um, uh, that must be some feeling. As we were um, walking in, I was just going to say, just talking about the Dylan Easton chant. As we were walking into the ground, um, there was two wee boys coming down singing the Dylan Easton song, and it was Dylan Easton's kids. Which I just think is the sweetest thing in the world. Walking down Tannadice Road, singing about their dad. Did Jim. you not? Did you not see the wee footage on Facebook last week with Dolly Neeson lying on a couch with his daughter on her knee, on his knee, and his daughter singing it to him? It was wonderful. It was one of these stories. So it's gone off. Uh, it's yeah. gone off Facebook now, but it was absolutely beautiful. Tears rolling down my face. Tanadice is, I think you picked up on it there, Duncan, but Tanadice is one of those grounds, one of those old-fashioned kind of Scottish grounds where you go in, you go through the clunky turnstile on the way in, and you go up and you walk behind the stand, and it always surprises me when you walk in how close you are to the pitch. Because mm -hmm. I'm so used to coming in now in these sort of bigger stands or whatever, and you're just that bit further away, but you come kind of out the, the door and into the stand, and you're like, oh, my God, the pitch is right there. And actually, four sides, you're right on top of the pitch. And like you say, the roof's on top of you, the noise. Um, I mean, 10,000 folk at a championship game is wild. I mean, there was, I think there was, what, 60,000 or something at, at um, Celtic Park yesterday. But then 10,000 uh, 10, people at Tannadice is the second highest attendance in, in, in Scotland. Um, it was just, it was a great atmosphere. The booze from them were glorious. Um, but the, the noise, just the atmosphere throughout the whole thing. And I know there's been a wee bit of kind of negativity this morning on socials about folks standing up. Um, but 
and and I get that from the point of view there are people who kind of struggle to stand or whatever, um, but it was just such a nice atmosphere in the place yesterday. Everybody was kind of talking to each other and happy and laughing and joking with each other and stuff, um, and the singing throughout the game. And um, I thought the young team actually again did a really good job down the front of just keeping that going. And even whoever it was that chucked the scarf at Big Kev at the final whistle, like <laughs> just it's brilliant. I um, I can't wait till the next time Christina's on just to ask kind of for her thoughts on that because obviously she said herself like she's only been going to football for a, just a few years now. She's not really been to away games. That's an away game. Like that's and they, like, they don't come round too often, but that is the kind of thing that <clears throat> when you talk, it's just, like putting on a five pound accumulator and coming back with sixteen grand. Like I don't know why. She should just stop away games at this point because her record's completely unblemished. It's absolutely amazing. You go to the Pars, got them 3 0, and then you go to Dundee United and see that. Like, Yeah, that was when she said she was going to. Um, she'd been, uh, been to East End Park. She's going back to East End Park. She was going to Tanadice yesterday. She's like, oh, and I'm also going to go to Livingston. It's like <laughs> a real drop off there. Like, that's, uh, that's a real, like, it's not like this every week kind of. Um, Hail off there. Sorry, John, in you come. Duncan, yeah. Even the pictures outside the ground, everybody queued up with their Santa Claus hats on, the blue Santa Claus. They're absolutely wonderful. You know, the amount of people. There was actually a Dundee United, uh, female Dundee United supporter after the game. We we came round the back of the, the stand and we're walking down there. And she was standing, filming on her phone all the Rovers buses going away. Because she's never seen anything like that at Tanadice in years, she said. You know, so it was tremendous, the, was, the amount of folk that were there. and great. Just really quickly on that point, John, there was something beautiful. We were on a bus. So as I've said before, Stevie Gray runs our bus and we leave the Weavers. Um, so the, the Rovers paid for the bus and stuff. So it was one of the 12, but we're the only one that didn't leave from Starch Park. Um, so we come along the Galton. And come along past the the up to the Red House roundabout. And as we get there, there's two buses have just passed and the rest of them are coming down the sort of A92. So we joined yeah. the convoy and see going across the Tay Bridge, they were pretty. I mean, I wish somebody had been had the foresight to get a photo, because they were pretty much just lined up because it's single file traffic across the fourth bridge was buses, pretty much end to end. I don't remember. I mean, John, you'll you'll know better than me, but I don't ever remember us doing this for a league game. Taking no. that kind of nah. league game. That was a home support last season. Effectively, yeah. a home support last season. Everyone goes up to Dundee and we win. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, the. I mean, the well, last that, time we were in in League One, that's that's fifty percent on top of some of our home supports. Oh, I, um, you know, I always I always think of our kind of core support. You know, like if things are going terribly, the kind of mug punters like us probably who will still turn up. Is about thirteen hundred. Yeah. So to yeah. take nineteen hundred folk up the road for a league game is is incredible. And again, I, I don't think we need to go over it for for a long time. But huge credit to the board just for for again reading the room, you know, reading the mood, and being able to just just dial it up that wee bit. Um, you know, huge credit for that bit with the buses. I think it just helped kind of snowball that up. Like we would have taken a big support, but. I tell you this, the the additional support that's been sort of inspired during the week will be over and above just those who got on a free bus. It's that 
capturing that mood and and spreading that kind of feeling absolutely filled that stand. Um, you know, I'm on top of obviously. The, the, I was going to say the director's pockets paid for those buses as well. That's not coming out. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. What's been yeah. said. Um, but see, even the Santa hats, like that seems like a nothing thing, but they must have had the best part of two thousand Santa hats. They're not. They're not free. Like somebody's having to buy them as well. Do you know what I mean? And even if they're getting them under a pound a hat, there's still over a grand there being spent yeah. on just getting us all to wear a Santa hat, which seems like nothing. But like John says, it was actually quite funny. It was like the invasion of the Smurfs going up that road. Right. Like, it was great. And uh, thank you to John for supplying me with mine, which again, if you're on the audio, you will not be able to appreciate that I've been wearing a Santa hat this entire time. Um, my dad was wearing it during the game yesterday and as it got to full time <clears throat> he turned to me and he says if we keep this run up I'm going to feel bloody stupid still wearing John Greer's lucky Santa hat in April <laughs> I can I just say talking about being lucky I was on a phone call coming round the bypass yesterday and I almost forgot to come off at my lucky junction and I apologised to the the three cars that all tooted their horns at me as I had slammed on the brakes and tried to get in, but I managed it. I managed it. Just as well. I think you take the you take the luck and you take the omens that you get. So just as I was I was coming into the grid, as you said, Blair, that point where you come out so you come out of the light at Tanadice and you're suddenly you're much closer to the pitch than you, you feel. And they were playing status quo, uh rocking all over the world. Rocking all over I the world. I was like, that's a good sign. I like that. Yeah. Um, used, used to only hearing it after the Rovers have won a game, hearing it ten minutes before kickoff was a nice wee like. Oh, I that's I'll take that. It's a good that's a good omen. There's been quite a lot of that this week as well. Folk talking about I normally do this, so I'm going to do it again, and, and I, I normally do this. I'm not changing anything. Um, and again, Stevie Gray that runs our bus wears this bright orange winter jacket when he goes to the football, and yeah. he actually had to message the entire bus chat and say, "Really sorry." But I've worn this to every game that we've gone to so far, and I'm wearing it again on Saturday. But it's bright orange, and it is literally like Dundee United tangerine orange. And he's rocking down the road wearing this big orange coat and a blue Santa hat. It's brilliant. 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 Right. I'd forgotten until you just said it there. We were coming up the road, coming up the Kingsway in Dundee, and a boy in a bright orange jacket kind of ran across the dual carriageway, but in like the the wrong direction, running away from Tanadice. It's like, does he know something that we don't? And and listen, maybe he did. Um, aye, because he certainly uh, wouldn't have enjoyed his afternoon if he was going the other way. Um, <laughs> right, listen, we're only an hour into this game. So the Rovers have just gone 1-0 up with that incredible goal. Um, so half an hour to go at Tanadice, they're undefeated. You'd probably expect a bit of a kind of an artillery shelling over that half hour. But that's I mean, not really what, what kind of transpired. So... Scott, do you want to give us your thoughts on on kind of, I mean, really that that sort of last half hour and and how that developed and how you felt about it as it went through? I I mean, uh, obviously after we scored, I think they made a double sub maybe a couple of minutes after it. Mm-hmm. I think they were obviously thinking about making a sub because you seen likes of Kujo and Watt out warming up, so I think they knew right, even if it was nil nil, we need to change something anyway, and um. I was a little bit surprised with who they brought off because I thought that Fotheringham was having a decent game, but not like anything special. But I thought 
with what he's been doing for them this season, he might be that spark that they still need to use. Yeah. I actually thought Fotheringham, maybe um, Fotheringham picked up an injury during the week, so he wasn't fully fit. Uh, he was only apparently like 70% fit. So. Nah, I, well, if that's the case, then fair enough. But I, I thought actually it might have been Middleton that would have got the hook out of the two of them out wide for uh, Kujo. But no, um, I also think that the fact that they only made two subs in the whole game actually sums up that they don't trust their bench. Mm-hmm. Like they're losing at home, chuck somebody else on, but they've got guys that are clearly not good enough to be playing, which also sums up the fact that we yesterday you looked at both benches and going, I I couldn't tell you the last time that we've played Dundee United and gone, we've got such a better bench than they do. Like it was crazy mm-hmm. how much quality we had on compared to them. I mean they had obviously. Likes of Cujo and what, but after that you're going either guys you've barely heard of or younger young guys, and obviously the young guys they might become good players. You never know, but with what we had on the bench, you're going if this goes to 70, 80 minutes at nil nil, or we are one nil up, we've got so much to come on still. But um, in terms of the game, I thought I thought they ran out of ideas very quickly, like. Gallagher and Holt were kind of passing it about, going, right, we need movement, we need movement. Nothing was happening. They brought on Cujo, who I actually thought might have ran Liam Dick around a bit more, and I was worried with his pace, but they didn't really, he didn't really, maybe once he got by him, but other than that, and they had a few crosses in the box and a few corners, but, and they ended up in the end resorting to like 30-yard efforts where I'm going, big Kev will take that all day. Yes, he's going to have to full stretch dive for it, but he's rather looking at a ball 30 yards out than five yards out and somebody's just tapping it in. So, no, I thought we were fairly comfortable. A few nervy moments, but... And I was a, a wee bit worried when uh, Bruni and Big Kev went clattering into the boards with the Dundee United boy. I was... When Kev got up and he ended up not taking a goal kick, I thought, oh, well, I hope this isn't a... I hope he's all right for next week, but also for the rest of this game. That, um... actually... Just really quickly, I was going to say, I felt the exact opposite when Big Kev was taking the goal kicks. I was going, <laughs> by the way, this might be a wee tactic going forward. When Bruni took that goal kick and just shelled it. It was a good, good thud like. <laughs> I was thinking, by the way, special mention as well to Jim Goodwin, who'd obviously not done any homework on Kev and forced these strikers to make him kick from hands at every opportunity. Because the one thing that Kev... And it's and Murray mentioned it in his his post match, and you you have to be honest, he's a great shot stopper, but his kicking can be a bit suspect. He kicking from the deck is suspect. He shells the ball from his hands though, and they stood in front of him every time, and were like, "Come on, you've got to kick it for your hands." Brilliant, thanks for that. Because if he's kicking it for feet, it's it's you know fifty fifty at best. There's something that's this is a, it's, it's a bit of an aside, but it's a real kind of bugbear of mine. Yeah, in this situation like that, right, where Scott Brown's taking that goal kick. So you've got Kevin Dabrowski's in the six-yard box. Scott Brown is taking the goal kick. Everybody else is at the halfway line, as you would normally be. Why is their striker not standing on the edge of the box? Because yeah. he can't be offside. So what happens is Scott Brown takes the goal kick, and then he's got to run yeah. 50 yards to join the offside line. And I think somebody like Louis Moult, who's been around for a long time and is a very good player, why are you not standing in what is essentially 40 yards of free, like, clean air, where if Declan Gallagher, Kevin Holt wins a header, you're basically in a one-on-one. And they just didn't bother. So this is, well, this is good. 
You don't think um, it's just lack of practice because that's like school football one on one. If the if the centre half's taking the goal kick, you get all your strikers to stand on the edge of the box, and I say to them like, if the centre half comes out, you have to come out with them, but you be up there because if we win the header and it comes back, you're like you say thirty yards up the pitch. But how often do you see a defender taking a goal kick and shelling it long now? As a as a professional footballer, it just I don't know if it's just lack of practice, like it never I happens. Think, I think it could only be, but it's the kind of thing that I don't know. I think if I was, God forbid, if I was in the home end, I would be. Yeah, that's at the point where I would have been like, "This isn't happening today." They're not on it. They're not thinking about this well enough. And I mean, Louis Moult, I touched on it when talking about the first half. I think he's a really good player. I think yeah, I think he's a really really good player. And when we're talking about, um. Dylan Easton, who's the best player in the championship, which I think, quite frankly, he is on this season's evidence, like without any caveats at all. It absolutely is. Yep. At the start of this season, I remember talking about it and saying that I think like on on kind of technical ability and stuff, Louis Moult's maybe actually kind of a better player. It's about whether he can show it, whether he can stay fit primarily. Watching him yesterday, I was really reminded of a couple of times this season, we've talked about the boy um, Jakubiak plays for Dunfermline. You think he looks really, really good, but the more you watch him, you realise he's not actually managed to achieve anything. And I yeah. think that's that's a bad afternoon for Louis Malt because category he's a good goal scorer, which the boy Jakubiak isn't. But um, that like Louis Malt yesterday, like his movement was really good outside of the box. The way that you know he knows how to win his free kicks, he knows how to lay the ball off. But I mean, how many touches did he get inside the box? Like maybe two or three, and they were kind of like glancing headers. You can see he looks like a striker that is not scoring goals at the moment, which he, he is, and he should be. But at the same time, he's it's that's the situation that he's in. So yeah, not our problem to worry about for now. So can you imagine him Can I say one thing about Lee Mo as well? Yesterday, he did Josh Millen's job for him. Because there was an extra ball on the pitch and he went to kick it off and the idiot couldn't even kick it off. It was funny. It was funny. And then, obviously, you've got your Ross Millen tackle, which was oh, oh just Dude, absolutely like, glorious, wasn't it? That's I celebrated that. that more than the goal because I was so shocked by the goal and just it was right in front of me, that tackle. And you see him, it was like... We talk about that Marvin Andrews one on Stephen Bell um, in the playoffs all those years ago. It was very similar to that. And they saw Ross Milne picking up speed and he rocket. He starts to hurt one, basically. Comes in, last man, gets the ball away. And then he just turns around and straight away, just screaming in our fans, celebrating it. And I'm screaming right back because it's just so good. And it made it even better that someone had found that photo online where it's just perfectly timed where he's sliding in, getting that ball clear right as Moat's about to shoot, eyes on goal, and you're just thinking, that is sensational. Just brilliant. That, again, is one of these ones that if you're in the other end and you're like, we're going to get one chance, you know, we've got that striker who's, who's uh, you know, by reputation, you know, should be better than this division. He's going to get his one chance, and that's it. When he comes inside mm-hmm. Scott Brown, and I, as soon as Ross Millen's in there, that uh, you're absolutely I think everybody celebrated that like a goal. And um, 
The I only mean, thing that would have made that better is if it was at the other end and he was celebrating into their fans. That's the whole, it's literally the only thing that would have made that just that little bit more Ross Millen. If I mean, Ross Millen gets booked for over-celebrating a tackle, I think at that point we might need to start shackling him. It's it's getting out of hand. <laughs> um, talk, sorry, talking about bookings, I'm going to take us back to the first half just because we, we, we went past this. Louis Malt caught Scott Brown in the face with an elbow. And then, with and then 30, 30 seconds, seconds later... Louis Vaughan gets Louis Vaughan. I've not seen that back, but it didn't look like he was going with his hand or whatever. I mean, it looked like it could very well have been a foul. Like he was kind of jumping into his man. He, he didn't win the wall. I could not I believe bet. that he booked him for that. Well, yeah. And yet, the one, the one before was far worse. It was it was like an elbow. It was a seemingly um, Davy, um, based on what I've heard about the Rafe TV commentary, Davy was quite like, yeah, that's no idea how that decision's been called. And usually they're pretty pretty on the level about it. They're not ones to be sort of blue-tinted glasses about things. They're very much like they call it as they see it and they try and be as neutral as they can. So, I I say, I've not seen that back. But at the time, I just thought, it seems like, it seems quite straightforward to me that if you've seen it and you've given a foul for a player catching another player in the face with his arm... That's a yellow card. Like it's that's it looked. He's moving at pace. It looked dangerous. Um, I'm, I'm going to come in with a slightly unpopular opinion. So, um, I didn't think Brother Beaton had a terrible game yesterday. I've got to be no, honest. I didn't either. No, no over I the piece, I thought, I thought he, was... he did okay. So for me, the yeah. difference between those two, and it's something I spoke about with the O'Reilly penalty at Dunfermline versus the one he didn't get at Burness. Vaughn turns and faces Gallagher then turns back, then jumps. And to me, even if you don't mean it, that makes you look guilty as hell because you've literally turned and seen him. Whereas Molt has eyes on the ball the entire time. And I'm only talking, again, I haven't watched it back, so I'm only talking from live. So I could be talking nonsense. But at the time I felt he had his eyes on the ball the whole time and he's done that thing where they're scrambling about and he's caught him in the face. And for me, that kind of point in the game, I didn't think it was a booking. And I could be completely wrong, but I live I thought free kick, get on with it. I thought Vaughn was maybe a bit unfortunate, but probably a bit more self-inflicted. The fact that he turned, looked at him, and then effectively jumped into him, and Gallagher saw it as well because there's no way that that made Gallagher go down. Right, the way just... went down. He's bought it. Yeah. I wasn't even. I think as well. Um... So, sorry, on, I, I just wasn't that fussed that it was a foul. I was more annoyed that it was booked because I thought. You're either going to book both of them or you didn't book both of them. You can't have one or the other. That's what. That's something that I've noticed actually with beating a lot of the time. And he gets a lot of stick when he's doing the big games in Scotland that a lot of time he just seems to pick which one he prefers to book. But you're going, no, that's not how it is. They're, you've given them for the exact same fill. So they're either both a booking or they're both not a booking. So that, that I think that's what riled up everybody else going, well, you can't be like that for one and that for the other. It's just the inconsistency but I mean that's the case with quite a lot of referees in Scotland it is the the inconsistency that's the problem Well again if you're speaking about inconsistency the point I was going to make was about Sibold in general just like got away with quite a lot I feel like that was one that it was there was definitely potential there to to sort of see more yellow cards come out I think in terms of that but over the piece I thought that beating was fine I'd agree with Blair I think that like there wasn't anything that was like outrageously scandalous in that game like for instance earlier on in the season when we got the penalty against Morton and you're thinking oh, our days in or the one that Dunfermline get your days no in 
well, it was for us that day, but um, some days it works for you, other days it doesn't. But sometimes you just get days where the referees are overall, over the piece, generally they're all right. And I think that yesterday would probably fall into that category. The Sybold one for me is a funny one because I think you're right. On the booking, the amount of, amount of fouls that he makes after the booking, you kind of you start to feel a bit like, hang on a minute, like you've not even pulled him in for a word. Like you've got a at some point. But the flip side to that is that the booking that he took was actually pretty much his first foul in the game. Mm-hmm. It was just that it was a stonewall yellow card because he, he pulled him back. It's a bit like Sean Burns' yellow card, which was beautiful. I mean, oh, Sean, I- very quickly to go to the other end. So Sean Byrne gets the ball, tries to slow everything down, tries to take on two men when he really shouldn't, gets himself in a world of trouble, falls over and just holds the ball. It was like a, it was like a scrum, just grabs the ball and then it gets booked and goes, aye, fair enough. Aye, the funny off. thing about the Sean Byrne one was, though, about 10 seconds before he does that, there's a foul that should have been given to the Rovers mm. in that movement. And then Burn, as you say, just lies on top of the boy and grabs the ball as well. I thought it was a foul as well, to be fair. And he was yeah. playing for a foul and didn't get it. Yeah. So just yeah. grabbed it. Aye. I think it's, it's having the awareness there that he's no... He's like, am I getting this foul? No, I'm like, there's no mind to complain about it. He's like, all right, cool, fine. I <laughs> just grabs the ball. I'm taking it's my ball and I'm taking my book in. It's the fact he doesn't try and grab the man because there's two of them. Aye. I think in his head, like you've said before, Duncan, he sees it in slow motion. He's thinking, if I grab him, he's still getting the ball. So I'm grabbing the ball. It was just yeah. beautiful. Yeah, he's such a clever player. Um, yeah. And uh, I suspect we'll talk about a bit more when we get on to the man of the match. Certainly I will. Um, just uh, I want to talk about the substitutions a little bit more as well because, Scott, you mentioned that that um, Dundee United made two changes so they basically swapped a winger. So they swapped Fotheringham for, for Cujo. And um, they put Tony Watt on for, for the boy Mockery. So he was playing kind of attacking midfield. Tony Watt came in as a kind of second striker. But kind of like for like changes, Tony Watt, I can only assume, is not fully fit because he didn't. He just looked off it. Like in, in the way that, like, you know, he's obviously he's not as mobile as he once was anyway, but he looked like a half yard off it in his head as much as anything, because touch wasn't there and he just wasn't getting anything to come off for him. You contrast that with the Rovers changes. So Connolly comes on for Easton. Obviously, that's a, like an enforced change. Um, Easton, I think, he kind of tweaked his back in the first half and kind of the adrenaline got him through. But again, I think this is a really important point. We talked about it in the midweek about the 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 various compound benefits you get from having such a strong bench. Dylan Easton himself knows I can come off here. Like I've done my job. I don't need to play through, you know, the pain here. I don't need to play through if I'm not at my best because Aidan Connolly is at his best and he's champing at the bit um over in the uh in the tiger cage waiting to go. So Connolly comes on and he gives you with a slightly different um, kind of technique to it, but he gives you everything that Easton gives you in terms of your work rate and your quality and your ability to keep the ball. And then five minutes after that, Jack Hamilton comes on for uh, for Callum Smith. And I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And he was just what we needed at that point. Because yeah. he's so, so good at what he does. And again... 
we talked about if you're on the other side and you're seeing these guys coming off the bench, if you're Kevin Holt and Declan Gallagher, as that game goes into kind of 20 minutes to go, you're kind of settling into, right, what's my job for the last 20 minutes of this game? It's going to be recycling possession. It's going to be picking the ball up off a of long clearances for that defence. One of us will knock it to the other one because we'll win a header off a of Callum Smith or off a of Lewis Vaughan. So if I'm Declan Gallagher, I'll win the header. Kevin Holt can go 10 yards further at the park to pick it up and we'll recycle again. And we'll just have this endless pressure and we'll actually not have to do a lot of defending. And then you see Jack Hamilton coming on. And all of a sudden, that just kicks the whole game 15 yards down the park. Because now Declan Gallagher's thinking, I've only got a 50-50 chance of winning these headers. So now Kevin Holt, instead of being able to be 10 yards further at the park, has if to go 10 yards back in case he doesn't win it. And you just get this repeat pattern that comes in where the game is just moving away from Dundee United. And Jack Hamilton's just doing so, so well. Um, and not even like, as he taking the ball to the corner and all that kind of stuff? It's just the, the inability of Dundee United to settle into a pattern that they want. And it, takes that pressure off the back line kind of time and time again and means that it's a game that goes in both directions. It's not just one-way traffic. I thought, Izzy, I thought Jack Hamilton was absolutely brilliant when he came on and it's such a yeah. good option to have. He did so well just in terms of like bringing others into play as you've sort of touched on and just changed the real dynamic of it um, because we had him and Gullen and Gullen as well actually did really well um, in terms of like his efforts of getting the ball and winning sort of like getting on those and just keeping the ball at the other end of the pitch. And it just frustrates them because it turns a sort of what should be a 20-second process becomes a minute and a half um, where you're like, okay, rather than just recycling the ball, getting it up the pitch, it then becomes, oh, he's won a knock-on. Oh, he's got Gullen. Gullen's gone down the wing. He's played it back to Hamilton. They've interchanged, brought in Connolly. They've brought in someone else. And then the next thing you know, the ball's going out for a throw and then you've got to get it back in and go to the other side of this pitch brilliant absolutely great to see and it just you could tell that just as the game ticked on and ticked on there was definitely a feeling that like the hour glass was getting to its point where it was like the bottom half was very much full and that we were going to be doing getting over the line I, I did not really worry too much towards the end of the game um, just even for all their for their lack of threat up top and how we were handling things at the other end of the pitch, I just thought, yeah, we're going to get these three points and down the road. I think, um, again, to go back to the the kind of fictional average manager at this level, at some point in that last 10, 15 minutes, Josh Mullen comes off for Dan O'Reilly. And you change your shape and you get an extra body in the middle and Ian Murray just doesn't. He's happy with what's happening. You can see that he's, he's got those runners and it's occupying the defence and again full credit for them because that would be so tempting but that's how you start kind of inviting the the pressure on Um, I mean at any point was there any any kind of worry creeping in for you at any point Blair in that latter kind of portion of the game not hugely I mean there's always that they were creating a bit more so the, the ball was coming into the box a bit more and there's always that you know if you throw enough some might stick but 
no, we, we I felt like we were dealing with it really well. I actually turned to the boys and said exactly what you've just said. Like, it would be so easy for Murray to bring on another defender here. He's got one on the bench. It'd be so easy for him to do it. But actually, what's working is us not doing that. And I sometimes think, like, like instead of... And, and I think part of it is the, the being brave thing, but also we had nothing to lose. Like, if we'd left yesterday, Tannadice with a point, there's no Rovers fan would have been upset with that. None of us. So at 1-0, you're looking at it and you're going, do you shore up and protect your, your goal and your win? Or do you actually just keep doing what you've been doing anyway? Because worst case scenario is that they get one and then you've got the option of, of kind of solidifying if you need to. But it, it, for me, he got it right. The only thing that was missing from that substitution when um, Hamilton comes on was like some kind of WWE crashing music coming on like because it was 60 minutes in they've they've just conceded they roll all their dices They're, they've got nothing left so they and, and Scott's picked up on it the substitutions that they made and I, I picked up through the week about why we score late goals is because they get worse and we get better and I didn't feel they were going to get any worse because they weren't going to make any more substitutions so they just kind of plateaued they just reached this point where they were never going to do any more we bring on attacking players and start to go at them. And like you say, stop them doing that recycle, recycle, recycle thing. Um, Hamilton was amazing yesterday. And to, to only have him for 20 minutes um, was probably the only thing that you could wish was different about that game. Because I kind of now look at it and go, oh, how would it have been if he'd been playing for 90 minutes? You know, like, would we have actually been a bit more comfortable than what we were? Um I thought the substitutions all the way through from Murray, um, as they have been all season, were brilliant. Um, it's, it was funny as well, listening to Scott Brown's interview after the game, and because he did one with um, Kenny... Kenny McIntyre. McIntyre, thank you, I couldn't have any surname, um, with the BBC. And I don't know how much of it's tongue-in-cheek, but he, he kept talking about we're playing uphill into the wind. And, and it's one of those things when you're in the stand... You can't really, I mean, I don't know how much of a slope there is. And it didn't feel like particularly windy, but when you're on the pitch level, it's maybe different. But it was like first half, they made this conscious decision, as John had mentioned earlier, to swap ends for a reason, though. And I don't think it was about shooting into the, the fans. It seemed to be this kind of uphill with the wind thing. See the first half out and then go at them in the second half. Um, but yeah, after 60 minutes, they were they were cooked. They had nothing left. Is that you're always going to get some chances in a game like that, but I mean, like Scott, you said, Kev Dubrovsky basically had two saves to make, both kind of very similar efforts from sort of 20, 25 yards, and he gets down well to them, and as we know he always does, he gets down to it and he gets it away, which is a, a really kind of underrated um, kind of feature, I think, from a from a goalkeeper. But yeah, not a lot more than that. I think they've been the last kind of touch of the game. Glenn Middleton headers kind of high and wide. That was a very difficult chance. I think from where he is on the park with that, it would have been like an incredibly good header to get that back across the goal. Um, and just, yeah, Ian Murray said it in his interview afterwards where he was like, if we had conceded an injury time, he's like, I, I don't doubt that that whole away end would have stayed and still clapped us off. And absolutely would have done because I, I think yeah, we've, We've been playing well enough for long enough now that, you know, with, with kind of notable exceptions because some folk can't help themselves, I think there is also a sense of perspective 
So I think you can watch a game like that, and if you happen to concede at the end, still appreciate that that's just a, a kind of sore turn. And um, I'm sure there was I wasn't the only one who was thinking with a number of last minute goals that we've scored recently, like we're going to have to be on the receiving end of that at, at some point. But yeah, in the in the kind of cold light of day, and looking back at it, yeah, it didn't actually. It didn't look like they were going to score. If they were going to score, it was going to be a kind of a a bit of a freak goal, and you do get them in in last minutes as as players start um kind of breaking away from what they normally do. But I, even the fact that like Kev Dubrovsky and and listen, I've got no idea if he was kind of hamming it up a bit to to just add to the occasion, but he clearly had, was hurt to some degree, and it didn't even really kind of get on top of him or any of that kind of stuff. I think quite. Quite naive. I wonder if they even noticed he was injured at times because they didn't even look like. You would have thought, all right, let's maybe put some more uh, balls in the box, see if he needs to come and die for them because then if he's landing on his hip or his back or whatever it was that was bothering him, that like we need to force something into him. But I don't even think they really noticed he was injured. Like, other than the one time that obviously Bruni kicked the ball for him, but like, and I, I must say, I. At the time, it wasn't until one of my mates said after the game, but like at the time, I was fuming that we were playing at like 90 plus 7. So I'm like, right, they've made two subs. We've only made three. You can't be having more than five here. And it was getting to six and seven. But I actually think Kev was doing it uh, and adding time on, which didn't need to be done because he's asking somebody to come and take the kick. And you're going, just kick it because the game's going to be over sooner, mate. Like, and then the team are like, no, get it up. And he's like, I can't. <laughs> you're just like, just do it. <laughs> Eventually he does, but you're going, you can see John Beaton's going, right, that's another minute. Like, it, it, he did look like he was in a bit of pain. Oh, yeah, yeah I don't yeah. doubt it. But it's, yeah. I think, again, it's it's something that we talked about. Um, well, two things we've talked about recently. One, the added time, I think we all need to make a little adjustment in our own heads. Like, you watch a game now and you go, like, yesterday, that's that's maybe a four minute, a four yeah. minute stoppage time, but we were getting five and six, and that yeah. just seems to be the pattern this season. It seems like you're you're getting more than you would have done previously. Um, because I think yeah, he played six and like a wee bit, and uh, I suspect had there been a board, it would have been five that would have gone up, and then there was an extra minute added on during the the stoppage time for the the kind of time that was was wasted, but um. The other point I wanted to make is about about Dundee United and that kind of lack of kind of clinical, almost like cynicism, almost that like like we're saying with the goal kick, where it's like just go and stand on the edge of the box, and if you're Tony Watt, for example, and you come off the bench, you're not really making much of an impact. Just take a book and just go and body the keeper. Like yeah. it's not a very nice thing to do, but you're not in this game to be nice. And I think just sometimes you see stuff like that and you think, why are you no why are you not doing more of this stuff and, and causing more bother? And I, I I was a little bit surprised that they weren't just putting more pressure on even Scott Brown. You know, had a bit of an injury picked up that injury. I think I think the two of them actually, I think it was Kev Lander on top of Bruni that, that kinda of hurt them both. And just didn't really seem to be able to give them give them a tough enough time. I see like the 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 lack of time Louis Moult spent just inside the box um, was uh, surprising uh, as much as anything. But I mean, said beforehand, they, they look equipped to win their run-of-the-mill games, 
but they've just got a bit of a mental block about their bigger games at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see how they uh, how they kind of respond to this one. I just um, hope that they um, lose a degree of their sort of they've had a, sort of almost like this degree of invincibility when they're playing other teams in this league, and I think that we've shown that like obviously we've got more depth than like every other team in this league. But like you hope that other teams will maybe sort of go in there with a bit of, sort of fearlessness now and sort of say, yeah, they are there to be got at. Let's put them on, under a bit of pressure. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. I was going to say as well, the, um, there's a lot being made about the late goals that we score um, and how the game goes on. But um, And I don't know who it is, and a part of me kind of hopes it's Christina, secretly. Um, but there's this Wraith Stats Twitter account that's that's popped up. Um, and it was actually something Stephen Lauder had put up, and they've responded to it. And I, I must admit, I hadn't even noticed. So we've talked about when we concede goals. So we've conceded 15 goals between 45 minutes and 74 minutes. And out with that period of time, we've only conceded three goals. And none of them have come after it. So we've, yeah. we've conceded goals in the first 10 minutes. We've got one in the first 10 minutes, one between 10 and 20, and one between 30 and 39. But there's nothing post 80. The whole season, we have not conceded a goal past the 80th minute. That's mental. Like, even if you take out the fact that we keep scoring in that period of time, which is also mental, but it speaks to the same kind of thing. Like, and it's it's exactly what you picked up on, Duncan, that we're not we're not inviting pressure on, we're not sitting back. To be fair, we're usually chasing the game at that point, but um, we are literally going to the to the opposition and not conceding. I can't ever remember. I, I mean, I'd, I'd be amazed if there's another team in the country outside the, the Ugly Sisters that aren't conceding goals that late in games. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you, you, you're buying on that. Um, it speaks to... It speaks directly against this sort of your luck will run out narrative. Yeah. Um, which again, if you do it twice, then you could argue your luck's going to run out. But there's every aspect of it, every angle you look at it from, it's um, it's it's been repeated and looks to be not literally. You know, you're not going to go the whole season without ever conceding in the last ten minutes, but. There's a, a big enough body of evidence now to say that that is a feature of how the Rovers play the game, and there's no reason why that can't be sustainable over the the kind of longer term because it's been another, a fairly long term. So let's say another beautiful piece of social media yesterday as well at the final whistle, that <laughs> video. That again, I love the fact that it's been made through the week. They've got it ready to go, and it's you know pinging up all the tweets about, and then even just the. The Dundee United nil, lucky Wraith Rovers one, <laughs> kind of walking out the ground, and I saw it, and it flashed up, and the signal in the ground was pretty crap, so it kind of flashed up, and then I lost it. I go, did that say lucky? Have we called ourselves lucky? Went in and had a look, and then the ping, ping, ping of all the tweets, and then the the music and the oh my, just beautiful, like glorious. Um, right, listen, we've still to do man of the match. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the to kind of that discussion. Anything else anyone wants to throw in about the the kind of the body of the game before we do that? Not just the full time whistle um, and the scenes that ensued. Like if you go back and watch the highlights at full time, the roar from the crowd is just ridiculous. It's brilliant to see, and obviously the players were up that end anyway because 
we were defending a corner, gets knocked away, and then rubber beaten, as he's now known. It's uh, blows for full time, but yeah, just fantastic. Just absolutely, just so loud, just so loud. It was great to be in, and uh, very glad I made the journey up. I just wanted to add as well that uh, I'm going to be interested to see how they react to this, Dundee United, because they don't, they, they're not like a, a team like a Hibs or a Hearts when they were in the league, uh, right? They're just going to bounce back and beat somebody 6 0 next week. That's just what Hearts did. If they ever dropped any points, it was like, right, that's a freak. Like, there was no way that Dundee United were going to go through this season invincible. It was just never going to happen. They're not that good. So I, I think that. They've shown already they lost both cup games in November there. Mm-hmm. It yep. wouldn't surprise me if they went and dropped points again in the next couple of weeks just because they, they don't seem like that team that's just going to instantly bounce back. They seem like a team that just, once they're lacking confidence, they kind of get it back like quickly. They seem to dwell on it more than literally just forget about it and move on. So it will be interesting to see. I, I mean, I think the next two games are away to... Queen's Park and then they've got Partick so yeah. like Partick will be a difficult game for them and Partick will look at that result yesterday and go right we'll do the same at Tannadice like I don't see why they can't go and get a win there I was going to say that um, I, I I agree with everything you said apart from the fact that they're playing Queen's Park next <laughs> that's the real disappointment Queen's Park mm-hmm. look like they, they their goose might be cooked already Um even if it is kind of pre-Christmas. But uh, yes, it's very, very interesting to see. And Robbie, you said it before the game about how antsy the Dundee United fans could be. And um, yeah. they certainly do not have a great deal of trust in Jim Goodwin. The I think he's, he's been kind of slowly winning them over with the league results, but then, you know, getting knocked out of the Cups. They're obviously not happy about it. And then, yeah, it's, that yesterday feels a little bit like, again, as you say, kind of a bit of a magic spell has been broken. They were starting to build up a little bit of a head of steam and a little bit of belief that, you know, maybe they could be like a Hibs or a Hearts where they're actually like, ah, we're, we're a cut above the rest of this division. And that's categorically not the case. And, um, yeah, well, I think they, I would be surprised, I'd be very, very surprised if they don't beat Queen's Park. That Thistle game's a big marker for them. Um, I think also as well it's interesting because it puts Mark Ockridge's been on record before when they there was a sort of fans Q&A and the fans were like what happens if we get relegated because our finances are like scunnered and he went oh we'll get out of that league easy it's not relegation's not a worry for us because we'll get promoted right back now you've got a position where they're going into January potentially in second place uh, all being well Obviously, we've got a few games left before that. January comes. What's going to be asked straight away is going to be, how are you going to get us reinforcements? Who are you going to bring in? And that puts pressure on their board as well because they'll be thinking, well, loss of... If we don't get promoted, that's financially, that's an absolute catastrophe for that club. So they're almost backed into a corner of, we need to now go out and find that kind of similar, what Kilmarnock did, bring in a player like Kyle Lafferty or Dundee did with Jason Cummings. Like, those players that are just... Maybe out of sorts in the top flight, but then if you stick them in the championship, they look absolutely ridiculously good. So it does put a, a huge amount of pressure on them, I feel. Um, and yeah, as it should do. So I think the context um... is really important. Like I was, I was going to say just before you did, Duncan, about the, the Queen's 
uh, Queen's Park game is the disappointment because, like you say, they should win that. But I think the nature of the way that they win that is going to be just as important. If they don't effectively steamroller Queen's Park, I think the fans are still going to be quite antsy going into that Partick game. Because, I mean, context is huge. Yeah, they've been knocked out of two cups or whatever, but that's three defeats and four for them. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, they were unbeaten in the league and stuff. And, yeah, they're blowing the odd team away and their goal difference is great. But they're no, they're no hibs and they're no hearts, like you say. They're no a great side. And I don't think there is a Kyle Lafferty out there. I don't think there's a, a player of that ilk. You know, even a Charlie Adam when he was at Dundee. Somebody who's going to come in and genuinely be a level above everybody else in the league. I don't think that's out there. Um, and when you actually look at it financially... They're already spending big. Some of the rumours about what Lewis Moult's on, you could basically get our front five for the same weekly wage, pretty much. You will nobody shake off it to what Lewis Moult's taking home on a weekly basis. Like, for value yeah. for money, he might be one of the best players in the championship, but when you can have four or five boys that we've got for the effectively the same money, like, the, Dundee United are spending money that they, they shouldn't be, to be perfectly honest. It's a tricky, it's a tricky market to go into as well because, as we've said with Dundee United, their first eleven is very good. What they need is a second string. That's a really difficult sell. Like if you, because they they really need a second striker. So what they need is a striker who's as good as Louis Mole, but who's not going to play because Louis Mole's already there. So you actually end up looking for somebody who's quite kind of disaffected wherever they are, somebody who's. In a like not getting a game somewhere, but who's going to be good enough? And even at that, players know that Dundee United have got money as well. So then, are you then overpaying for guys that are backup players? Like that, that's not a not a kind of happy place to be going into that market. That is is going to be tricky for them. Is um, it almost a different thing though? It's not about actually getting a second string. It goes back to something you talked about through the week. It's about having a bigger first string. Like, it doesn't feel like we've got a first team, and, and Ian Lattle keeps talking about it. We don't have a best 11 and then the, the the second string. We've actually got, like, 15 first-team players that could easily start every week. And so, like, the, the point you raise, I've been thinking about that a lot. It was a really clever point about how we, we're not going to get as many injuries because we're not flogging the dead horse, and we're not going to get, you know, players getting unmatched fit because they're not playing for week in, week out. Everybody gets involved pretty much on a weekly basis. It's just whether you're playing well, the first 60 minutes or the last 30. Perfect example of that is Ross Matthews. Yeah. Ross Matthews, long-term injury, comes back in and he can just build up his fitness over time. And if we play bounce games, so be it. Yeah. Get community lads and younger lads can do that. But I, um, he's a, a very good example of that. And if he can get fully fit and we can get him back to the Ross Matthews, you know, he's there. What an addition that is to the squad. So, aye. That's it. Someone replied to one of the tweets from the, the podcast. I'm not going to be able to find it because you've retweeted 40,000 gifts since it was. Uh, <laughs> I need to stop doing that. I need to just like them rather than retweet them. So I think I think it was Neil Hook, but I could be wrong and I apologise if I've got that wrong. But it basically was uh, calling back to something that, um, I think it was Eddie Jones, like the England rugby coach, and it's a bit kind of management speak. Neil kind of Rook. Stuff. Neil Rook, is it? Yeah. Right, excellent. I knew I was going to get that wrong. Um, it was like he didn't talk about his substitutes. He talked about his finishers, which is, I mean, it's terminology. It's like, it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. But I think that's quite a good way of thinking about it when you look at how this Rovers team works. 
it's not a case of like, oh, we're going to replace that guy because he's tired or, you know, we're a goal down, so we're going to put this guy on. It's very much an active part of the plan from the beginning that, as you say, these other guys who are just as much a part of the first strategy, it's not just 11 guys and then the other guys who aren't good enough, um, which is categorically a position we've been in before, where, you know, you've got guys on the bench who are cheap and are, you know, plentiful and, and we've just yeah. kind of managed to, you know, get them in um, from whatever. Um, you know, it is, it is very much a case of it's a first team unit and they're all contributing whether they, they start or not. And uh, yeah, that's very much the case that, it, that it, for it's not the case with Dundee United um, at the moment. They have their first string and then they've got other guys who are having to come in and try and get up to speed. Um, so it will be interesting, absolutely, to see how they respond to this in terms of their results and how they respond in January, because they're certainly going to have more more potential scope to, to make changes than, than any other team in the division. Um, right, let's get into Man of the Match then. So I have, I've kind of shown my hand already. I am going all in on uh, Sean Byrne as my Man of the Match for yesterday. Um, again, really just from that point, sort of the half hour point, on where you could see the rover start to really exert control on the game that, that hadn't really been in control either. I don't think it was the case that Dundee United controlled it and then we took it off them. I think it was a, a a very open game that the rovers then started to control and I thought that was entirely um predicated on Sean Burns' influence in the middle of the park. And that the way that he just slows everything down and you see it the way sometimes he just like he'll get the ball and it'll be like a forward player coming back to take it off him and he just steps away, like just steps behind them and, and shifts away. It's, it must be so frustrating to play against because he moves at half speed sometimes and you still can't get anywhere near him. And I just thought that he lets everybody else do what they do best, <laughs> um, including Sam Stanton, who, who was, was also absolutely excellent. But it must be so reassuring being Sam Stanton and knowing that Sean Byrne is there yeah. and that you can focus on looking forward because he's just there beside you doing all that hard work that otherwise you would also have to do. Um, so I, I'm going straight in on uh, on Sean Byrne. Anybody want to join me on the, the Sean Byrne train, first of all? Yep, Blair, right in you come. Could, could not agree more. And actually, I have nothing to add. I think you've absolutely smashed it. He's he was brilliant yesterday. Uh, I Rick, think Robbie. it could have been any of them, um, but yeah, I'd I'd agree with Barn as well. That's uh, yeah, just think he was fantastic and just funny the way that the world works that you get a Dundee player in on loan, um, and he's back loving his football based on all accounts. Um, he's just I was reading on Pine Bovril that they've apparently got an overabundance at Dens Park as central midfielders with about five players in front of them, which is great news for us. Um, so long may it continue is we are more than happy to be the recipients of Sean Burns' tremendous midfield performances if that's the case I think the point you made about Sam Stanton is is right as well as good as Sam Stanton was yesterday and he was brilliant he's brilliant because Sean Burns is there it's like everything we do it just feels like everything's because of Sean Burns just so good it's a platform that he gives you um, and I mean, that almost sounds dismissive because he does so so much by it, but it gives you 
a basis to work from. And so that's what I don't think Dundee United had yesterday. Yeah. Their midfield was all about going, bringing the ball through their midfield. So their, their basis was their defence. Whereas Sean Byrne meant we were starting from the halfway line, essentially. Um, they, the, the comparison I would make, and it's actually a conversation I had with the boys yesterday about if we were to lose Sean Byrne in, in January, if he was to go back, um, and there was a bit of chat yesterday, we were like, well, Dundee might try and force our hand to buy him, to, to buy him out. So that might be something, you know, we lose him for a few weeks in January, which is something that happens sometimes with the, the SPL sides. But the, um, the idea that, you know, it's fine because we've got Scott Brown, who's a ready-made replacement who goes in, and he is, and it's no disrespect to Scott Brown at all, but Sam Stanton has to play a very different game with Scott Brown there to what he does when Sean Burns there and it changes the dynamic not only of the, the the base of your midfield but like you say yesterday very much like Dundee United it changes just the way that the transition goes from back to front um, yeah he's uh, uh, he's so important for us so important um, Scott do you want to give us your, your man of the match and, and any other kind of notable mentions I mean I, I kind of noted down that I had uh, Bruni for man of the match but um it was closely followed by Sean Byrne. I mean, like, I think Sean Byrne said that in a recent interview uh, a couple of weeks ago that his his role is pretty basic in terms of he's just, he's there to mop up, but he's there to also just put his foot on it, control it, get it to the better players. And by better players, I mean the more skillful players. He's better at other things than what other guys are. But like, and he's a very good player in his own right. But what he's meaning is in terms of he's the one that's going right. If I give it to Connolly or Mullen down the right or if I give it to Smithy or Easton down the left, we're more likely to go and do something than if I'm to carry the ball 10 yards forward. Because he is there just to break up player, give it to the better players. But no, I thought Bruni was solid. Again, he's up against a guy that's meant to be the best player in the league or the best striker in the league. And again... I mean, I know that he had he came off the bench and scored at Starts Park, but I thought Bruni was brilliant against them. And then when they brought Watt on, you've then got two forwards to deal with. And again, and that I think it was, it, I think it was before Ross Millen's a uh, fabulous challenge was the block that him and Murray just dived mm. in front of. I I celebrated that like it was a goal. It was just brilliant to see them just chucking themselves in front of it. And I turned to my dad and went, look at them two meatheads just throwing themselves in front of that. Just, It was brilliant. But uh, no, I thought it was between Bruni and Burn, to be honest. But again, everybody did their part and it was just a case of, again, it was a team effort, to be honest. You just remind me of one of my favourite analogies, just very quickly, and I apologise if I've used this before because it, it cracks me up. Ian Holloway talking about himself as a footballer. And um, you basically just described it there with Sean Burney's like in a team where there's a concert pianist, I'm the boy who has to put the stool on the stage. <laughs> like the boy, he can't play the piano with a stool and he's a way to play this amazing piece of music, but he needs his stool. So I'm going to put the stool on the stage for him. And it's it's that, it's the freeing up other people to do their job. And it was, you're right, because um, Byrne talked about how he, he, you know, could he add goals to his game? Does they need to? Because that's not his job. That's it. See, I think he might be the only guy in the team who has like whatever the opposite of a goal bonus would be. 
he's had so he's had two clear cut chances in the time he's been with us, and he's he's kind of given them both away, like squared it out the road to try and uh, try and avoid scoring a goal. But uh, I've got absolutely no complaints on that. And uh, I, I'm 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 glad you've mentioned Scott Brown to be fair there, Scott, because I think we've maybe he's almost been so good recently that like we've stopped applying the the fact Caveat. that he's a midfielder handicap <laughs> to his his performance ratings that he should really be getting. Just forgetting him, we're now just treating him like he's a centre half, and it's like yeah, he played really well for a centre half. He played bloody well for a midfielder who's out of position, and. Uh, yeah, like just as much as you and Murray is, he's marshalling that defence and and doing everything, chucking himself in the road. But it, the a lot of the kind of proactive defending he's doing is very very good as well. And that's like we saw in the first game. That was some of the stuff that we kind of missed out on right at the beginning of the season when he was still kind of feeling it out. It's the the little bits of positioning and a little bit like the goal we lost at Inverness, where you know, Josh Mullins not a defender, so he's not quite where you'd want him to be. Scott Brown has almost eliminated that. He he's, he now looks like if you brought a, a neutral to that game and didn't know this division, there's not a chance they would get to the end of that game and say, "Is that boy a midfielder? Is he filling in at yeah. the back there?" Just not a chance. I, well, he's I, not even I think filling in. He's not even filling in anymore. He's he's been chosen over a recognised centre half because yeah, of absolutely. what he offers you in that position. He's a it's the old Italian thing. He's a libero. Do you know, it's that it's that playing from the back thing, but he's he's almost a sweeper that's not playing as a sweeper. It's that kind of foot on the ball, playing out from the back thing. Yeah, it's, it's a good good really good point. So let's um, let's mosey ourselves along into the uh, into the big question then, and uh, we're going to go back to our old pal uh, Derek Adams <laughs> and his greeting faced nonsense after that game. I uh, saw. Sorry, incidentally, I saw a suggestion that he was talking about his own team rather than than talking about Scottish football. So I went and watched that back. He's absolutely just talking about Scottish football. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what his point is. I don't know how he expects any kind of reaction out of his players. But anyway, as I say, I digress. My my question is is a, on that topic. Kind of daft stuff that people say after games, um, especially when they get beat. Uh, John McGlynn was always quite good for this. <laughs> As well, unless you were David Hancock or, or Neil Russell and had to actually be like three feet from him while he was saying it. But, um, Blair, do you want to start us off with, uh, I see, yeah, yeah, daft stuff that, that people say after games to get beat? Yeah, so very quickly, I think Derek Adams is, is doing a deflectionary tactic. It's the Jose Mourinho School of Management. My team have been minced today, so I'm going to say something so ridiculous that everybody's going to talk about that and nobody's going to talk about the fact that my team were beaten at home um, by a newly promoted side. Um, and it's completely deflectionary. It's also really narcissistic, I think. It's about him. It's nothing to do with the Scottish football. Um, for me, I mentioned it through the week, so this will be nice and quick. I loathe with a passion the if the game was over by 75 minutes brigade. Those stats that people trot out with, you know, like uh, if the game was over by 75 minutes, the Rovers would be third bottom of the league. The game's not over by 75 minutes. It's a completely pointless statistic. It doesn't mean anything in the realms of football. And it comes back to the Veldman school of football, that thing where football's not a game that you can play by numbers. It's not a game that's statistically based. You get lots of nice statistics out of a game and you can try and understand them and you can try and kind of flesh them out. But one game does not 
impact as directly as that on the next game. Do you know what I mean? It's no baseball or money, but it's no money ball. Like it just isn't, doesn't work. And so, yeah, I hate with a passion those statistics, those league tables that people trot out. If every game was on a Friday night, this is bugger off. Like, stop it. Uh, the ones I like with that is it's like, um, it's like uh, Race Rovers haven't beaten uh, this side uh, at home on a Tuesday in <laughs> August since 1946. And you're like, right, how many times has that happened? Once. Twice. Aye, ridiculous. Um, right, Scott, do uh, you want to give us your answer next, please? I mean, uh, I think both me and Robbie touched on it earlier. Uh, I-, I was just going to bring up actually something I was hoping to bring up earlier in the podcast was uh, about uh, a certain Mr Jim Spence who uh, was waffling on maybe a month ago saying no. that Jim Spence this, uh, well, surely on. not I <laughs> that uh, Dundee United w- are pretty much going to go unbeaten in this championship and I hate it when you see stuff like that like four after games and stuff like that it's like all it takes is for a chance to go in, a goal, like something, something to change red in that card. game. What? A red, yeah, red card, anything like that. Penalty be given that's not a penalty. Just something like that. And I just didn't, the championships, just, I keep saying it most weeks, it's never a bad result to get a point in the championship. And anybody can beat anybody. And it's proven it this season. I would say that there is definitely a gulf between the top three and the rest. But if the top three aren't on their game, they'll still get beat. Like it's you still have to be playing well, and the fact that like he came out and said that, I was just like, one, it's probably for views, <laughs> but two, like it's also, it's just so like, against what the championship is in terms of the fact that anybody can beat anybody. I just found it, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I don't know how anybody. It's not like it's a a heart that have came down. Dundee United were in the championship for three years last time. How they thought it was just going to be a walk in the park. And Robbie said about Mark Ogren saying that, oh, we'll just get out of it. It's fine. You Were you here last time? <laughs> it was just, or have you seen what happened last time? It's no, And they had Shankland last time, who was known as a goal scorer. Moult's not as much of a goal scorer. So I just found that pretty baffling, to be honest. That's it. He's, he's a, a behaver. Um, <laughs> right, I, I'll give you mine very quickly because mine is just, you see it all the time. And to be fair, it's it's a bold manager who would come out and say this. You see it typically with kind of um, supporters. Just any game the team gets beat and they're like, oh, two shite teams. Like, just two bad teams and one of them's won. And uh, it's just such a such a refusal to actually engage with anything that's happened at any point in the previous 90 minutes. Like, there's always, I mean, it kind of goes to Derek Adams' point as well, there's always kind of points of quality and stuff in this division. You will get poor sides, obviously, and occasionally you get ones like a breaking side who were were really, really poor. But this division, and I think it is specific to this, I think this is the best division in in the country. But, I mean, to your point there, Scott, like a point is never a, a bad result. You look at some of the results, like w- with a notable exception, the Rovers, like a three-game winning run is a phenomenal run. Like, I mean, we saw, uh, you know, <laughs> conquering hero Duncan Ferguson got a man of the ma- uh, a manager of the month and then uh, lost three of his next four 
including, I mean, getting beat by Arbroath. Um, like a lot of these, like Arbroath even went in a good run, and then ended up having to sack Dick Campbell. But still, I mean, I think they beat they beat Partick Thistle three nothing a couple of months mm. ago. Like it is absolutely true that anybody can beat anybody, and I just think it's such a such a like it's like an anti-opinion to watch Lazy. a game at this level. Exactly, that's exactly it's laziness. Just to go, oh, just two bad teams. Like, nah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on in this division, and uh, that, um, not, not just from the in, the top two. Feeds into my one, which would be probably currently the lucky one. I just feel like it's just just an easy out for fans to sort of say. Um, so I'd be interested to see if we've moved up from eighth place in the table if you subtract all our. 85th plus minute winners and if we've managed to get out of that danger zone uh, after yesterday where we won comfortably um, with a, a, a goal in the middle of the half so yeah that would be mine so, I was going to say as well see before we move on too far from it if anybody's got 10 minutes to spare today no even 10 minutes I think it's only five and a half six minutes and you want a giggle um, Duncan Ferguson's interview after yesterday's game is truly glorious um, a man who doesn't look like he understands where he is or what's happened. So he's just been beaten by our broth at home and he smiles the whole way through the interview. This really unnerving smile that he has. And he just keeps saying the same thing as he always does. He says the same thing over and over again. And this week it was, oh, the boys tried really hard. The boys tried really hard. But I mean, every answer, I'm just going to say that the boys tried really hard. They did. They tried really hard. Um and actually do you know what I don't know if you've seen it the other thing he said and it jumped out to me when he said it he said the phrase staying in the division a manager who's just come into a side who should be top half of that table I mean even Murray said it like that's not a, a fair reflection of where they should be at with that squad and he used the phrase staying in the division I'm like wow that's a bold thing to be saying in December he does I know exactly what you mean but the way that he smiles in interviews it's like he's watched one YouTube video that was titled something like how to adapt if people find you too aggressive. <laughs> and it's like, make eye contact and smile. And just yeah. the entire, I'm sorry, this is going to be of no benefit to the audio listeners, but he's just like this. <laughs> yeah. I thought we played really well. It's like, Jesus Christ, man, that's creepy as anything. Really unnerving. Yeah, it's really, really weird. Nodding um, his head to try and get assurance. <laughs> and actually to be fair again if you want I've not even seen it but if you want to see managers saying daft things after games Doogie Emery's always good for a for a watch as well uh, you could just assume he's said something mad uh, without having seen it um, well Gareth I should also point out by the way just for, for people who are on the audio only uh, John Greer's not being uh, uncharacteristically quiet he uh, <laughs> He took his leave a little while ago. I think he just had something uh, better to do rather than talk to us. We're, for, we're, not uh, letting him, we're not letting him away with that. He's away to get changed because he's going out for lunch. I can't believe anybody would rather do anything than uh, sit here and play with us for a uh, guy on longer than the game was on uh, yesterday. Um, so on that note, uh, we will bring this particularly enjoyable episode to a close. Uh, so again, thank you guys and thanks to, to John for being here and thanks again to John for giving me this hat. Um, I hope everybody is um, in their lucky hats on uh, Friday night where we have Air United, but we will be back presumably Thursday night to uh, to preview that one as we always do. 
Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, thank you again to everybody at the football club. This has been an incredibly fun season up to this point, and I cannot wait for it to continue. And um, yeah, right, listen, I think if we've learned anything in the last few weeks, if you are ever on the fence about whether or not to jump the car or jump the bus and go and watch this Rovers side, absolutely take that chance because they are uh, they're they're paying it back in huge amounts at the moment. I think you you kind of um, you you earn your karma a lot of the time with the football, and it feels to me like at the moment this is like the last ten years almost we're starting to get it back. The, whether you're at the games, you're watching the games, even if you're just, you know, you happen to spend some of your time hammering your thoughts into high and ball roll like a lunatic, um, this is when you're getting that time back. And uh, it's been incredibly fun. I, see, I can't wait for it to continue. And uh, we will be back later in the week. Thank you very much. <laughs>